Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back, Critic listeners. Why has Scottish opinion shifted in favour of breaking up the UK at a time when the UK Treasury is pumping billions into Scotland's coronavirus response? In this podcast, The Critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, talks to Kevin Haig, chairman of These Islands, a cross-party pressure group that seeks to play a prominent role in shaping the debate in favour of maintaining the UK in a future referendum. Is all lost or do the unionists have a plan? Great Britain is poised to become Little Britain. Well, that's the expectation if the Sunday Times panel base opinion polls are to be believed, which shows soaring support for the Scottish National Party and for voting yes in a future referendum. 54% of Scots now say they would vote yes if they get the chance to have another referendum on Scottish independence. How have we come to this uh, pass? Uh, Kevin Haig, uh, 2014, the referendum was won by a convincing, if not overwhelming, margin. Um, bruising though that encounter was, it seemed that was you know the only vote we'd have for a generation, and yet here we are, uh, six years later, with very strong pressure for a second referendum, particularly if the SNP get over fifty percent of the vote, which the opinion polls suggest they will in the Scottish parliamentary election scheduled for for May in next year. What, what has gone wrong for proponents of the United Kingdom in Scotland? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm tempted to ask how long have you got? Because um, quite a lot has gone wrong since, since 2014. Um, I mean, it's worth reflecting for a moment on the success of 2014. That The further away from that vote we get, the better that result looks, I have to say, you know, in, in a world of, of Brexit and Trump and populism and um, one might argue a, a sort of rejection of rational politics for the emotional sort of culture war politics, um, that, that was obviously a good result. What's happened since then, clearly, as you say, you know, it would be um, naive to look at those polls and not be worried if one cares about the future of the United Kingdom. Um, and the big things that have happened are obvious. You know, Brexit uh, is is clearly the biggest single uh, factor here, but also the, the the election of another Tory government and the specific makeup of that Tory government. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson, uh, I think, is is Nicola, Nicola Sturgeon's dream prime minister to be pitching Scotland against. Um, so circumstances have played very well into the favour of of the SNP in terms of those big sort of political movements, the shape of the UK, the direction of the UK relative to Europe, and another Tory government in, in Westminster is, you know, that's the kind of tick box of what the SNP would have wanted to happen. I think what's interesting is what's gone wrong for the SNP and the national nationalist movement has been largely ignored. And whether that's been ignored because the SNP have done a great job of distracting from it, or because those in Westminster have been distracted themselves away from the question of Scottish independence and towards issues like Brexit and, of course, more recently, the, the pandemic. 
because what's gone terribly wrong for the independence uh, cause is the economic case. And there's two major elements of that. One is oil. And it's not just the oil price. You know, everyone always simplifies it down to a debate about the oil price. If the oil price was $100 a barrel, we still wouldn't be seeing anything like the levels of tax revenue income from North Sea oil that was baked into the, uh, the SNP's independence plans. So there is a massive hole in their economic case where oil used to be. And there's a new problem for them. And that problem is, is Brexit. So, you know, most of your listeners, your audience, I think, is probably a pretty um, favourable to Brexit audience. Um, you know, cards on the table. I'm not. Um, but if you look at that through the lens of the question of, of Scottish independence, what Brexit has done is created a strong emotional drive for independence for Scotland because famously Scotland voted to remain. We are being dragged out against our will is of course the, the, the overused soundbite, but it works as a soundbite. But what Brexit also does is force Scottish independence to be a question of choosing your market. So if you're optimistic as a Scottish nationalist, and if you brush aside all of the problems that would be involved in Scotland rejoining the EU, which we may come on to discuss, you can say, well, we've been dragged out of the EU against our will. Scottish independence would give us the chance to get back into the EU. Now, there's a whole series of issues there. But of course, what that also means is you are necessarily choosing to leave the UK single market if you do that. What Brexit has done is taken away from the nationalists what was a very simple narrative. It's all right, we stay in the EU, therefore we're effectively staying in the, the same market as the UK. There is no market damage from leaving. Now, like Brexit or not, you know, and I don't, but like it or not, it means Scottish independence would necessarily, if Scotland wants to become part of the EU, would necessarily mean joining a different economic union. Now, of course, the, 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 the simplistic nationalist argument would be, well, the EU is bigger than the UK, so if we have to choose between the two, that's easy. Now, that's obviously ridiculously simplistic. We export, 60% of our exports go to the rest of the UK. We share a currency with the rest of the UK. We receive fiscal transfers from the rest of the UK, which we certainly wouldn't uh, from the EU. And of course, if you look at the historical ties, the emotional ties, the cultural ties, Everything says that for Scotland, the union that matters more objectively, and this isn't always about objective observations, but objectively, the union that matters more is the UK. So you would expect that those two factors would scupper the, the nationalist cause. And yet it hasn't. It demonstrably hasn't. Um, and, you know, I suppose at its core, you've got to look at the opposition here the opposition to the SNP, both within Scotland and indeed the extent to which Westminster acts as an effective opposition to the, to the nationalist cause without being seen to be opposing Scotland, which is of course how, how the SNP would always like to, um, to characterise it. So there's a lot going on. Um, there are those sort of big macro things I've talked about, and then you've got the personalities. Well, I'll come to the personalities uh, later, but I, I want to just um, return to a very interesting point you were making about how uh, Brexit has made a stronger economic case for maintaining the union. And it just strikes me that that is a double-edged sword. Imagine there is another referendum and the uh, pro-union pro 
campaign starts saying, saying because of Brexit, you know, you're, you, it's more important to stay in the single market of the UK than to try and join the single market of the EU. I mean, your, your point that you make is economically literate, but it is emotionally and psychologically illiterate. Because if I was your PR man, I'd be saying, oh, stop talking about Brexit. You're just reminding Scots of something they don't like about the UK foisting a decision on them that, that, that they, the majority didn't vote for. Um, isn't there really a problem now that uh, so many Scots feel a sense of alienation from the UK and particularly from the political decisions of the UK that you can make as many compelling economic arguments as you like ultimately they want to make their own decisions in their own way just as many people who voted for Brexit didn't actually think voting for Brexit would make them better off but they did feel they, they would have a sense of control over their own destiny. Yes well I mean I think so, so first of all I think that's a problem for those who champion Brexit and oppose Scottish independence. I think you're right there is a fundamental uh, disconnect there. Uh, you know it has been pointed out many times there are a lot of similarities between the Leave rhetoric and the Scottish independence rhetoric. They are both in some, some way taking back control they are both about you know a narrower definition of us about an unwillingness to participate in a broader democratic group and say no I'd, I'd rather this smaller group gets to decide our future so i think you're right to highlight that conflict the question is what do you do about that do you do you just try and pretend it doesn't exist uh or do you address it and i think you have to address it I don't think, you know, Brexit, the reality of Brexit is not going to go away in this debate. Trying not to talk about it is not going to work. It's writ large across all of, of, of British politics at the moment. And so, you know, to, 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 I, I often say the economic case is a necessary but not sufficient condition to winning the argument about the, the United Kingdom. But it is a necessary condition. And certainly those arguing for Scottish separation do not want to talk about economics. And so I think there's a real risk here that we allow them to define the playing field. That we say, yeah, we shouldn't talk about the economics. It shouldn't, you know, it, should, it shouldn't all be about this kind of, it's not spreadsheets that wins the argument. And of course that's true, but you shouldn't ignore the economic reality. So again, necessary but not sufficient. And that's why, you know, with, with, with these islands, one of the reasons why these islands was formed, the organization that, that I chair, is we can, frankly, the economic arguments are easy to win. If, if, if it becomes an argument about spreadsheets, Scotland stays in the UK. There's kind of no question about that. We need to do it. We need to keep making sure it's won. We need, we need to uh, counter the false claims and the misinformation. But that's actually relatively straightforward. The challenge is the one that you highlight, which is, yeah, but there's a different emotional argument now. And Brexit has changed that emotional argument. Now, for people like me, I have the benefit, at least in this context, of being wonderfully consistent. You know, I'm kind of generally in favor of these unions. I'm generally in favor of cooperation. Uh, I don't like, you know, borders being put up. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a fan of tariffs. I believe in free trade, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and so I can say, well, two wrongs don't make a right. You know, if, you, if you're voting for independence because you, you reject the idea of Brexit, well, fine, I reject the idea of Brexit as well, but there you go. I don't think you, you fix that problem 
you know, you don't fix breaking one union by breaking an older, deeper, stronger union. So, and I think this is one of the challenges for those sort of defending the union is, you know, politics in the UK, you know, used to be left-right, then it became kind of left-right independence unionist. And now we've also got the Brexit dimension. And one of the problems is those defending the union are both Brexiteers and Remainers. And the emotional argument that each of those two camps deploy is necessarily very different because they come from a very different place when it's, you know, when it comes to thinking about how unions work. So you're right. It's a problem for those defending the union. And I would argue, actually, that, you know, one of the challenges, if you look at the, the polling data and you look at where that swing towards independence has come from, it is primarily a remain voting, formerly uh, no voting Scots. So if you think about the, the sort of language, the messaging, the arguments, where that needs to hit, you know, who do, who do we need to be influencing? It's disgruntled remain voters. Now, it's quite hard for a very Brexit-driven Westminster party of power to therefore sort of show themselves to be in the camp of those disgruntled Remain voters. So I think that's a, that's a problem. It's something those of us who care about the union have got to grapple with on both sides of the, the Remain-Leave divide. So if we uh, look back for a moment to 2014, uh, where the, the Better Together campaign, as, as the pro-union uh, campaign became known, uh, it, it focused very heavily on the economic arguments. Are you... I mean, at one level, it won the referendum, so not obviously not a totally disastrous campaign. On, on the other hand, uh, it wasn't actually a very good campaign. If you're only surviving with a, you know, if you're only supporting a 300-year union by an ever-diminishing uh, percentage point, then it's not that good a campaign. And everything that's happened since, with the further diminishing of the union vote, suggests that you know you can win battles on the economic argument, but if you don't win hearts and minds, you, you're going to lose the war sooner or later. I, I, I'm wondering what the unionists have learned from 2014, uh, and also what your take is of what the, the nationalists have learned from 2014. It's an interesting question. I think um, what have the unionists learned? Um... I mean, it's partly that, I suppose. The, 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 the biggest issue, I think the biggest sort of um, wake-up point for the, for the unions was the, the six months after that result. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine a, a result where the winners felt more like losers and the losers behaved more like winners than the Scottish independence referendum. Um, and I think that partly sort of makes your point or reinforces your point that winning based on you know I, I i would take issue with i'm someone who's been on a journey on this myself i would take issue with the you know it wasn't a very good campaign because it was a great campaign because it won i would argue and that's actually you know the only thing that matters I, you know <laughs> we can have a discussion about the brexit uh, campaign and what an awful campaign uh, that was but you guys won so you know fair enough i suppose if you take that view um, but but so so you know better together i was quite critical of a lot of better together particularly around the, its failure to make the emotional arguments but the further away you get from it you go well it won and actually that was its job um, but i would agree you know, with, with, with your sort of 
implied thesis there, which is we have to learn that it's not just about the economics, that it's not just about winning the numbers war. We have to win the, the emotional, cultural battle. So I think, I think that's right. I think it's, again, in the context of Brexit, it's very difficult. But as time moves on, and you know, we can talk about the pandemic and how that has made people think emotionally about what Britain is, about what the National Health Service is. And although it's fully devolved, it is still a national asset. It is something that Britain created. Um, so I think there are real challenges to be made to make that emotional case. What did, what did the nationalists learn? I think what the nationalists learned primarily from the Brexit campaign, actually, was that you know, they, they played very fast and loose with facts and numbers in 2014. They've now just, they don't, they don't, they, they, their view now is they don't need to bother. You know, they don't have an economic case. They don't have a currency plan. They have no answer to the obvious questions about how Scotland would sustain its higher level of public spending were Scotland to leave. What they've learned, what they, they hope they've learned, is that that doesn't matter and that's why I keep coming back to this it has to be more than economics but we mustn't mustn't give up that ground and say well it's not about economics anymore politics is all about emotion that means we have to fight the emotional case but still that foundation of economics I do believe comes back because ultimately the economic case only exists because an emotional case exists and that's something that I've sort of worked a bit on and I talked a bit about it at Newcastle, I think you were there, where the only reason why the economic case exists is because we pool and share resources across the UK, to use you know, Gordon Brown's overused phrase, but it's a good phrase. And we do that because whether we think about it or not, citizens of the UK tend not to question whether someone in the far reaches of Cornwall or on the Shetland Isles or you know, in some remote part of Sutherland, it, does it cost more for them to receive their education than it does someone you know, in Birmingham? Well, if it does, so what? That's, that's what we do. We share those resources. So where you, where, you where you live, where you come from, how economically productive your region is, shouldn't affect your access to education and healthcare and social welfare. Now, that's a really fundamental emotional point. You know, it's not something that exists across the EU. It's why, you know, the EU requires its nations to, to be fiscally autonomous. The UK doesn't. So for me, I come into these things from numbers because that's the kind of person I am and that's the background that I have. But you can come to it from the emotional case and you end up at the same point because it is as a result of being willing to morally uh, sort of pool one's lot with, the, with everyone in the UK. So I don't care whether you can afford your operation in Hull. You should have your operation because we have a health service that delivers that. Now that's an emotional uh, position it results in some economic transfers. It results in, you know, the famous fiscal transfers. It results in, you know, the Barnett formula, which sustains that higher expenditure in Scotland. So it becomes numbers and formulas and, and pound signs, but they only exist because we accept implicitly, and maybe that needs to be made explicit, we accept a, a, a moral contract that says, do you know what, we are all in this together. We are better together, if you like, uh, and therefore we let these, we, we, we facilitate these financial transfers. So it's, it suits 
the SNP to ignore the economic case because it takes away the, the impact of the emotional case. So if you agree that we pool everything together in the UK and actually I don't care which side of the border you're on, you, you, you have the same rights to services, then that leads to economic, real economic factors. If you ignore the economic factors, you can say, well, I can still care about that, but we're just separate, we're friends. We're just, you know, we're, we're, we're an allied country and, and we, you know, we'll still have our cultural ties with the rest of the UK. Well, yeah, but cultural ties with the rest of the UK don't pay for operations and schooling and free tuition fees and um, uh, you know, not having to pay for prescriptions or not having toll roads or building new bridges. So the, the emotional underpinning results in some very significant tangible economic realities. And I think you, you have to tie those two together and you have to remind people of both. And of course, what we're witnessing now, I mean, certainly no complacency. Um, and I do think the union is under, is under very real threat. Um, but of course, there's a big difference between knee-jerk emotional reactions based on someone's you know, better podium performance during a pandemic, and you actually get into a campaign and you actually start to think through the practical implications of what you're trying to do. And that sort of knee-jerk emotional, yeah, actually, I don't like the party in power in Westminster at the moment, and I think this leader in Scotland is doing a better job. Well, fine, you can think that. That's not necessarily a reason to break up a 300-year-old union, and if you do, what are the implications of that? Now, those steps are not steps that are gone through when people ask, answer a, a simple poll of yes or no today. So when we look at the polling at the moment, which suggests that, uh, well, let's look at two sets of polling. Polling last year, which showed that there was a swing from um, unionist to nationalist based on a response to Brexit in which unionist uh, Remainers were so upset about Brexit, they were now moving towards independence. So the Brexit effect had one swing towards the nationalists. We're now seeing a second swing, which doesn't seem to correlate with how people voted on Brexit. The, the latest swing to nationalists seems to be almost roughly the same between Scots who voted Leave and Scots who voted uh, Remain. And it seems that the motivation is partly impressed by Nicola Sturgeon's handling of coronavirus in Scotland and their perception that Boris Johnson has handled it badly. We can debate whether the two positions are quite as removed from one another uh, as, as uh, is made out, but nevertheless, that is the perception. Um, but secondly, Scotland has shown itself as if it's a sovereign country, with every day the First Minister having televised broadcasts. The, the um, notion that Scotland controls its own health service is now being made manifest. People can see it, and they can see Scotland running its affairs in a way which they think is better than how the rest of the UK, by which they principally mean England, uh, runs its affairs. So. It, it's almost like coronavirus is a dry run for independence and it's allowed the Scotland to say, yes, we can. So take the second of those points first, because, of course, the, the irony here, as with so much of the, 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 the 2014 indie ref arguments, is that what we're seeing there is how well 
the United Kingdom works. That actually, you know, it would be it would be a source of great grievance for Scottish nationalists if they weren't able to be behaving differently during the pandemic crisis. And as you say, they're actually, we are actually not behaving very differently at all. It's, I've just said before, it's like one of those digital plus one channels. You know, whatever happens in, 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 in England happens in Scotland a week later. Um, but they have a chance to see how think people react and, and to tune their messaging. Um, so, you know, the very fact that, it's, it's a bit like the whole kind of Scottish cultural debate. You know, the fact that nobody in Scotland feels less Scottish for being part of Britain. Well, obviously some people do because those people vote for, for independence. But, you know, the idea that Scottish identity isn't a thing because the United Kingdom has suppressed that national identity. I mean, it's clearly nonsense. The very existence of, 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 of the SNP, um, the fact that Scotland is able to behave like a sovereign nation, to use your words, and yet we still benefit from being part of the UK, benefit in all those very you know, tangible ways. So it's kind of weird that the, the very things which the UK is enabling, which show how wonderfully flexible the UK constitution is and how it has evolved to respond to the desires of the Scottish people in terms of greater devolution and greater freedom and its separate health service and all of that stuff. That's what the UK has enabled. So the idea that that should be used as a reason for independence. I mean, this is back to the, the debates of, you know, those who said devolution will kill independence stone dead and those who said devolution will, will enable independence. Um, certainly those who said it would kill independence stone dead there's no question that they were wrong. Um, the question is, you know, so where does that where does that get us to? And I, I think, I mean, the pandemic response is a really interesting one. Uh, you know, in terms of the personalities, I think even even the most ardent nationalist would, in their heart of hearts, admit that what they're applauding is not Nicola Sturgeon's handling of the pandemic crisis. It's her handling of the podium. She is a better podium performer in these situations than Boris Johnson. She's serious. She's on her brief. She's empathetic. She thinks well on her feet. She's a very good podium performer. And I think that actually is, is what's going on here, which is why, you know, those of us defending the union, I think it's really important that we get people to separate the, the sort of party political from the constitutional. Um, right now, I mean, I, you know, frankly, if, if, if you put the constitution to one side and you said to me, who would I rather have, you know, as a, as a, as a political leader when it comes to just understanding, uh, understanding people and issues of social welfare and, and wealth redistribution and all the stuff that I care about, I suspect Nicola Sturgeon is more able in that regard than Boris Johnson. But that isn't why I would, that wouldn't be a reason for me to break up the UK. I could equally imagine a situation where there was a leader in Scotland who I thought didn't actually sort of play very well to my emotions and a far better leader in Westminster. That's individuals, that's party politics, it's the winds and tides that change, whereas the constitution is something so much more um, permanent than that. So inevitably the personalities involved affect people's opinions. But I think that would be, I think, I think the job of those defending the union is to make people step back 
You know, look at the ground beneath your feet. Think about what you're actually dealing with here. This is not a vote. Let's say there was another independence referendum. The idea that that would be a vote between Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson is, is nonsensical. It, it would as well be a vote between Alex Salmond and Keir Starmer. And there, guess what? I might, I might find myself with a very different emotional reaction. So the, the, the personalities are transient and passing. And I think it's important that people are reminded of that. And the fact that what we're witnessing is Scotland able to uh, sort of flex its muscles, find its feet, represent itself, have a clear identity in this debate. Hurrah! Isn't that brilliant? That's how the UK works. It allows that to happen. You know, the Welsh language has flourished more in Wales than the Irish language in Ireland. And yet we're part of this awfully constraining union. So I think, you know, and again, it's about voicing these things. It's about getting people to think beyond the knee-jerk emotional and say, well, actually, what does this tell us about the way the UK works? And I would argue both, you know, economically uh, and constitutionally, what we're seeing at the moment is the UK working very well. Now, the personalities are obscuring that for, for, for many voters in Scotland. But if you are able to step back and think, well, actually, what's happening here? What's happening is Scotland is flourishing within the United Kingdom. I, I think if this debate is going to be conducted in uh, a salon of the 18th century enlightenment in, in Edinburgh, it looks like you're going to win hands down. However, we are dealing in a world of personality politics and uh, we have to deal with the personalities we have and we have to accept that if there's a referendum sometime in the next two to three years, likely, um, uh, we'll probably be dealing with the personalities we have currently, which is to say Nicola, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, Boris Johnson, uh, uh, Richard Leonard, uh, Scottish Labour leader, uh, Jackson Carlaw, Scottish Conservative leader. Um, and the truth is, none of these people in, in a media-driven uh, media referendum campaign, none of these people are going to take on effectively Nicola Sturgeon. She is going to wipe the floor with them. Boris will probably not take a forward-fronting role, like David Cameron in 2014. Uh, I, I, I think the Prime Minister probably realises that, that his prominent role could be counterproductive. But if he's not there, uh, then, then who is? I mean, it's a great question. I, I mean, I, I agree with that analysis, by the way. Um, you know, we touched on it earlier on. You know, one of the problems is, is, is a an appallingly ineffective uh, opposition, um, particularly in Hollywood. Um, you know, there is a Ruth Davidson-shaped hole in Scottish politics. Um, I'm not the first person to make that observation. Um, I'm, uh, this is one of the areas where I struggle because at the end of the day, you know, party politics needs to do its job. You know, the parties need to do their job and they need to find the right people and, and put them forward. I mean, the one person who probably can scupper Sturgeon is Alex Salmond. I mean, there is a kind of irony to the fact, and I don't, you know, I don't like this for the same reason that I would argue the constitutional future of the United Kingdom shouldn't be resolved because of, you know, two personalities and you happen to prefer one versus the other neither should the case for independence be ruined by the fact that the SNP tear themselves apart that should be distinct but you know if I have to take one I'll take the other 
Um, and so, you know, without getting into the weeds of it, there is a very significant divide within the SNP, broadly speaking, along the you know, sturgeon salmon lines. And there is much still to come out from that. Now, I don't like that insofar as passively standing by waiting for your enemy to tear themselves apart is not a very good strategy and, and we shouldn't rely on it. I agree that we need better personalities who are more attuned to the sensitivities of the Scottish electorate than we have at the moment. Um, I think Keir Starmer as a, as a leader of the UK Labour Party is a definite positive step in that regard. Um, but yeah, the, the reality is, you know, if there isn't a stronger opposition and a stronger set of individuals in place in Scotland, uh, if it is effectively a Boris Johnson versus Nicola Sturgeon argument, and if the economic arguments don't matter and don't land, then absent something else, I suspect the union is doomed. Last time it was Alistair Darling who fronted the campaign. It, it won't be him next time, it's probably fair to say. Um, who, who are the runners and riders in your view? Uh, it's, it's difficult. I mean, people talk about Ruth Davidson. Um, she obviously she stood down largely because of Brexit, but also, um, you know, starting a family and, and having some different priorities in her life. And that might mean that she is in a relatively strong position to be able to, to step into this if she was interested in doing it. Um, but of course, then that does become, you know, the SNP versus the Tories which again, the SNPs would probably take. I'm sure Nicola Sturgeon would rather be facing, you know, Boris Johnson or, or perhaps even Michael Gove than Ruth Davison. So, you know, she has to be a candidate. Beyond that, you know, there, there's, there's obviously this, people have said, and I suspect it's probably right, you know, there cannot be another better together. The damage caused to the Labour Party um, by being seen to work with the Tories on something, uh, you know, is damage that will be felt for many, many years to come. I think that's a very disappointing reaction from the electorate, I have to say. I think it's quite reasonable to um, believe that your political opponents might be your allies on certain matters of, of national or even international importance. Um, but there we go. That's the politics we live with. Um, I mean, I mentioned Michael Gove. I think, you know, I think he's interesting. He's a, he's a divisive character to many people. He understands Scotland uh, in a way that I don't think Boris does. Um, but again, I don't think Nicola Sturgeon would be, you know, weeping into her pillow to, to discover that she was going to be negotiating. She was going to be debating against Michael Gove in a, in a, in a, in a referendum. Um, there, I mean, there's a question of whether, you know, is it someone from outside party politics? But I think that would be a huge mistake because, Politics is politics. Politicians are good at politics. Um, there are plenty of examples, um, some from the Remain campaign, of when you get, you know, prominent business people or people from other walks of life trying to have a go at politics. They tend not to be very good at it. Um, it's one of the reasons why I steer clear of party politics. Um, and, you know, what we try and do with these islands is very much on a cross-party basis um, and just trying to sort of shepherd the thoughts and the ideas and the arguments and, and, and trying to make sure that we have a civilized debate about this stuff. But, you know, that the, there is no obvious um, 
candidate, I think, is just the reality of it. And uh, hopefully there is enough time between now and assuming there will be a referendum at some point, there is enough time for somebody to come forward, for some people to come forward and, and uh, put themselves in the frame. But right now, yeah, that would be a problem. Let's assume that in May the SNP get north of 50% of the vote. Let, let's say they get what they're polling at the moment, 55%. In your view, constitutionally, there is no mandate for them to demand uh, a second referendum. But in your view, is it politically inevitable? And would Boris Johnson, assuming he's still Prime Minister, would he be obliged to concede one or, or face civil disobedience? So I, I think there's, I think it's important to separate two things here. What, you know, one is the, um, the, the mandate at Holyrood, and the other is public opinion more generally. Um, now the two might be the same. It may be the case that the SNP has a majority at Holyrood and an over, there, there is an overwhelming public demand for an independence referendum, but they are not necessarily the same thing. So, you know, Nicola Sturgeon herself back in, whenever it was, 2015, 16, was saying, you know, the conditions for holding another independence referendum would have to be overwhelming public support for it. And that's not necessarily the same as we know in terms of electoral politics and, and, and the maths of this stuff. That's not necessarily the same as saying you've got a majority at Holyrood. So I think the political reality hits home when there are opinion poll after opinion poll saying 60% plus of the population want another independence referendum. At that point, I think it becomes very difficult for Boris Johnson, despite the fact clearly constitutionally he's allowed uh, to deny another referendum. But I think it would be a mistake to say that the, the political reality pivots on that the, there being a pro-independence majority at Holyrood. So the, and again, it's the difference between... So, so, so the pro-independence majority at Holyrood, then you can, you can sort of, you can reasonably stand by, I think, the, that's not how the constitution works, that's not how uh, referendums work and, and all of that sort of stuff. If there is overwhelming public support for a referendum, I don't think any, any Westminster government can continually deny that. And what, this is the final question, what role will these islands play between now and May next year, when the Scottish parliamentary elections are, and, and potentially after that? So, I mean, a lot of that depends on uh, our supporters, uh, you know, those people who help us keep doing what we do. And clearly the pandemic has, has meant that everything, including these islands, has kind of been in lockdown um, for the last six months, effectively. Uh, we will, you know, our ambition, is to keep improving the quality of debate. Our ambition is to be a, to be a forum, uh, to apply rational reason uh, to the debate, to counter misinformation, but also to build that emotional argument, to make the case for Britain, to uh, detoxify, if you like, the you know, brand Britain insofar as uh, so much of what's going on in politics at the moment seems to be toxifying that brand. 
and that's difficult that's you know that's why we've got historians involved that's why we've got uh you know communicators uh people who have from outside politics as uh, as well as the, the academics and those um from the kind of periphery of politics involved so we want to influence that debate we want to uh help find the the best way to make our case where us in this context is those of us who believe that war unites us than divides us that keeping the united kingdom together is a cause worth fighting for uh and we will continue to fight that cause as long as we have people supporting us and telling us it's worth doing kevin haig from these islands thank you very much thank you if you've enjoyed listening to the critic podcast why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.